Don't doubt, believe. And that's where God is taking us today. And I'm just going to be transparent with you and tell you that when I first started reading chapter 17, I felt that there was some truths that, that I thought was important that I wanted to bring out, but I could not shake what God was saying to me in this text. And uh, for quite a while, I wrestled with him. And then to this week, I wrestled uh, with him of, of what is it that you're, that you, do you really want me to go this, this route? I feel like you're saying it to me. And I think in my sense of humor and maybe the way God deals with me, he kind of chuckled and said, are you doubting? Are you doubting what I'm impressing upon your heart? Stop doubting and just do what I'm asking you to do. So we're going to read some scripture texts out of uh, Genesis 17 and 18, but then we're probably going to spend a little more time outside of the book of Genesis talking about how that relates, and then we'll come back to those passages at the end so you can see what God brings out of the text. So how many of you in this room have ever had doubt of any kind? Raise your hand. All right. We're in good company, right? So we've all had doubt about something. So uh, it could be as small as I doubt I'm going to be able to win this race, this foot race I'm in um, because of that other person so good, all the way up to something extremely significant like I doubt God. And, and we've all had that particular thing in our lives that, that is a weight to our feet that pulls us down. And today, we're, I believe God wants us to hear what doubt is about and why doubt is there and what it does to us and, and how it keeps us from being able to run the race that He's called us to and kind of sucks the life out of us. When we're reading through uh, the account of Abraham and Sarah, we learn that Abraham has had a son now named Ishmael. And then in 21, we see he, in chapter 21, we see that he has a son named Isaac. And we learned that there is a significance to Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is representing the flesh, the way of doing things through the flesh, and Isaac represents the way of doing things through spirit and truth. And I think when we start comparing those two things, we'll start uh, seeing what's rising to the top of what God's doing in our hearts and in who we are supposed to be before Him. So let's look at uh, chapter 17, and we're going to read the, the few verses here starting at verse 15. So if you're following along, taking some notes on this, we're going to start at verse 15. Remember, uh, before we read this, that uh, God has made the promise to Abraham and to Sarah that they're going to have a, a child, that they're going to be a parents of a strong nation. He has renamed Abraham. He took the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which leans and means grace within your heart, and he placed that on Abraham. He changed his name, gave him a new name, and said, because of that, I'm showing out my power. And so we join now in that continued conversation that's going on at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, if you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Guess what letter in the Hebrew alphabet God used to place on her name to change it, the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which means grace, and he changed her name. Interesting thing is, he didn't change the root meaning. The meaning before he changed her name was princess, and then the meaning after he changed her name was a princess. In other words, he took it from uh, Abraham being proud of his princess to God being proud of his princess. 
All right, so he changed her name and gave her a new name at that point too, extending his grace to her. Verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Doesn't it sound a lot like Abraham at this point has some very strong unbelief in his heart? Like, okay, you've promised this to me. We've made a covenant. Um, I've extended, you know, my part of the covenant too through the circumcision. I'm requiring this of all my family. And, and it just really, really you're going to do this? And you would think, well, Abraham just had unbelief until you lean into the New Testament in Romans chapter 4, when Paul is speaking to this, it's very pointed, and we'll be able to understand a little bit more what's going on once we read this. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. In hope, he believes against hope. Now, what does that mean? You're, you're slamming hope against hope. What does that mean? It means there's two different types of hope. There's a hope in God, there's a heavenly hope, there's a hope that God is who He says He is, he is and what He's going to do is true, and then there's a humanistic hope. There is a hope in the world system. There's a hope in the things that's around us that we put our faith in sometimes. So, in hope, He believed against hope. That's what that's talking about. He, he allowed the hope that he had in God to overtake the hope that he had in the world. Because we know Abraham already tried the world's hope, right? That's how he got Ishmael, which represented the flesh. And so, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Then it goes on, it says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of his Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So, in that point where he said, really? I'm 99 years old and my wife is 90 and I'm beyond child-rearing age and her womb has been barren. She's beyond the time of what women uh, would be able to have children. Really? It was not unbelief. So let's look further. Let's jump down now to chapter 18 of Genesis. Let's see another part of this account that goes on to where we can begin to understand the difference between unbelief and doubt. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Just kind of lets you know, all commentaries seem to think that Abraham's sitting in the door of his tent and the men just appeared. It's not like he saw them walking off from a distance. They just appeared there in front of him. So he knew that he was being visited 
right? It's not like these men were just kind of like sojourners, just kind of walking through, wandering. He knew that, that, it, was, that it was someone that was visiting him. Verse 4, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the trees while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. One seah is about four cups. Uh, so he was saying 12 cups of flour, uh, 12 cups of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had, he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, these men are obviously representatives of God or maybe God himself. Commentaries are a little bit all over the map with that. I tend to think by, based on some of the things they said uh, um, that it was probably at least Christ was there, but it could have been God himself. We don't know, and it's okay. He was being visited by a word of the Lord. But he looks at them, and, he said, and they say, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, they weren't confused. They knew exactly where she was. Why would they ask? Well, they asked so that Abraham would shift his thought process to his wife. Mike, if I said, uh, where's your wife, Lynn? You would go right here. Okay. It may, but it would make you think for just a minute about Lynn. In fact, everybody in the entire room just thought about Lynn. Okay. So that's kind of how that works, right? Just by asking, that's what they were doing. They were saying, um, that's where he is. So now Abraham, Abraham is talking and thinking about her. And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I mean, that's called out, right? I mean, she knew it. He knew it, and he just stated it, right? So now she's, she's called out in that. A little bit awkward. And you would say, okay, well, Sarah had unbelief. She had lack of faith. Until you read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised so what is going on here? There, there's, there's something that's really crazy going on in that we have to understand this doubt. That people of the Bible had doubt. People of the Bible were confused about what doubt was and, and how doubt was. Let me give you the definition of doubt. Doubt is to call into question the truth. To call into question the truth, that's doubt. Now listen to the definition of unbelief. The state of being unwilling or unable to believe something. That's unbelief. 
There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. And we're going to kind of pull this out and talk a little bit about it. Doubt is a call into question the truth. And don't we, as believers, hover around doubt? How many of you have doubted in this room about anything in your life? Let's see, let's see how bold we are. How many of you have doubted about things, spiritual things? How many of you have doubted God? My hand's up too. I'm not just telling you to raise your hand. It is a part of walk in our journey with God that doubt is going to seep into who we are. Some of it's from our own sinful nature. Some of it is from the circumstances that are around us. Some of it is just a a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. We're kind of ignorant about what the Bible says about certain things, and, and it allows doubt to kind of lean into who we are. Even Thomas, remember, one of the disciples had doubt. How did Jesus respond to that? In John 20, 27, It says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas was like, I can't get my eyes to accept it. I can't get my brain to accept it. I'm having trouble getting my heart to accept it. I'm having difficulty moving forward with this. And Jesus said, look at my hands, touch my side. Don't disbelieve, believe. And I I know for sure that when you and I are doubting about God himself and when we're doubting that he's moving in our lives and that he's actually there and that he's present and he's helping us walk through things, when we're doubting that, I know for sure that Christ himself wants to meet you right there. He wants to meet you at that and say, just take my hand. And that's what we're going to get encouragement from in this uh, text today. So let's look at doubt for a few moments. Let's talk about doubt in our lives and the things that we tend to hover around, the things that we don't seem to understand in our walk with Christ. John Bloom, who is a writer for a website called DesiringGod.org, which I would commend to you to go look up. There's lots of great articles. But John Bloom writes this. He says, in the race of faith, that Jesus has called us to run, doubt is a weight you simply can't keep running with. You've got to drop it today. So just because we can admit to one another that we have doubt, just because we can admit to one another that a lot of our walk with Christ is in doubt doesn't mean we're supposed to stay there, right? Just because I admit it doesn't mean, oh, well, it's okay because you admitted it. Uh, really at the root of fear, the root of sin that has a hold of us, comes doubt. Doubt is what drives who we are in our walk with God. This is the verse that John Bloom was speaking of, Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How many runners do we have in the room? Raise your hand if you're a runner. Do we have anybody in here that's ran a marathon? You can't see her hand over here, but Lisa's ran a marathon. You've ran a marathon. Let me ask you marathon runners. Jeff said he ran a marathon. I'm with you. Your life is like a marathon, right? Okay, there we go. Um, 
let's ask, you can shake your head yes or no, you don't have to answer out loud. When you ran the marathon, did you run with ankle weights on? No, right? Did you run your marathon with ankle weights on? Did you have any kind of weight on you like, uh, like an, oh, I don't know, a camel pack because you needed a lot of water. You needed to carry that water with you. You wanted to be as light as you possibly could to run the marathon, right? What Hebrews is saying to us is that our doubts, our sin is like weights that we've strapped to ourselves and clinging to us that are going to weight us down and it's going to prevent us from running the race with endurance as we're looking to the finish line. Our doubts weight us down. And we need to uh, kind of call them out and see what they are. Remember, doubt is a call into question the truth. Unbelief is a state of being unwilling and unable to believe something. Let me kind of give you a kind of a biblical example. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' time were unbelievers. I mean, Jesus told them who he was, and they didn't believe it. He demonstrated who he was, and they didn't believe it. But the man asking for his son to be healed was a different story. And in fact, if you look at Mark chapter 9 and you go into to the account of what's happening there, I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about it. The father says something that's so profound there that can lead us in our walk with Christ um, as we understand where he was. It, it is an amazing thing that he says to Jesus. But what's going on here is this man had a son who was possessed. This man took his son to the disciples, and, and, and the disciples were unable to bring healing. And so the man brings his son to Jesus and says, I took my son to your disciples, but they were unable to do it. Um, can you do it? And Jesus, in, in response to him, says this, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, listen to this, this is the profound part, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, what, what turmoil was going on in this father's heart is I believe you can do it, but what was going on? Will you? Will you? I believe, help my unbelief. And Peter gives us a picture of doubt when he walks on the water. Remember that account? G Peter was walking on the water out to, the, to Jesus who was coming out to the boat. And as long as he had his eyes on Jesus, he was able to stay afloat. But then he recognized the waves that were around him and he began to sink. And he cried out to Jesus and Jesus reached out his hand and picked him up and said, Oh, you of little faith. So doubt is not a complete absence of faith. Hear me on this. Doubt is not a complete absence of faith. We, we have faith in Christ. It's just faith that is laden with weights. It's a faith that is heavy. It's a faith that is uh, kind of pulling us back and, and pulling us down. You see, that's why Jesus responded to those when he was dealing with them who had doubts. He responded with them with a gentle rebuke and then corrected them. But with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders of the time, he gave them just a sharp, straight rebuke. 
Your unbelief is unbelievable to me. Going back to the metaphor of Hebrews 12, 1 then, let me ask a question. Are you running in your life with ankle weights? Do you feel like that your life just can't move forward? That there's something that's holding you back, something that's weighting you down. You can't quite understand it. You can't put your finger on it. You don't know exactly what it is. May I interject to you today that it has a lot to do with doubt. And I believe that's what Scripture is telling us today as we're in the book of Genesis. Listen, the longer we carry these doubt weights, the stronger their power becomes to overcome us. We are often tempted to think that carrying the weights might be a more realistic way of living, an intellectual understanding of what the world offers to us. And so we reason out that, well, life is hard. Life is confusing. Life is tough, which is a true fact. But that's not the way Jesus wants us to live. Did he or did not, did he, did he or did he not say, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly? Did he look at anyone and say, oh, sorry, I'll be back in a few millennia. Good luck. He does not want us to walk defeated. He does not want us to walk beaten down. He does not want us to run the race with ankle weights on our legs. Here's the thing. Our doubts and our sins that we hold on to We shouldn't fool around with them. We should drop them. We should drop them. We're going to demonstrate in a little bit about what this looks like and how it works. The first thing we have to do is we have to repent. Recognize that doubt actually is a sin before the Lord. How do I know this? Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, John the Baptist, uh, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. What are you repenting from? Not believing the gospel, not believing the power of God not believing that he is who he says he is, and then believe in the gospel. Don't be content to just tell Jesus how you're struggling. Well, you know, I I pray every day, God, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, I'm struggling with this, I doubt this, I doubt that. Repent. Call doubt what it is, a distrust of God. And that's a punch in the face. I'm saying that to me, just as everybody else is listening to those words. But doubt is a distrust of God. Repentance has an amazing power to break the spell of the sin weight that is tied to our ankles as we're trying to run through life. Doubt takes on a different look for us in today's culture. Let me ask you, what is that thing that you're struggling with? What is that thing that's holding you back? 
Could you look at that particular thing, that particular, that, 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 that weight that is in your life, could you some way look at that and say, I can see in my life doubt because of that? Call it out. The second thing we're to do is we're to believe. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. And, and listen, believing is actually a little bit simpler than we make it out to be. Because we think that we have to put something in place to become something in order to have a strong faith that's going to impress God so he'll move. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Scripture says just trust and believe in who he is and what he's done. So a good Scripture text to memorize, church, is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I've read it several times over the last few weeks, and I believe the reason God has brought me to that is to today. Trust. That's, by the way, 100% trust. That's not I sort of trust. That's 100% trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. You say, okay, well, I've been asking God for this one thing, and apparently because he hasn't done that thing for me, it must mean that I haven't trusted enough. I haven't had a large enough faith to make that happen. Do you hear what's happening there in that? I trust God. Now I need him to do what I want him to do. When you put it like that, you're like, oh, okay, that was an unfair punch. But isn't that how we muddle around doubt all of our days, thinking that, well, God, probably he loves me, and I know he loves me, and he would probably do this thing for me, you know, but it must be something in me that's just preventing him from doing it. There is a chance that there is, but I bet it has something to do with doubting who he is. And we're going to talk through this in a minute. Let's flesh this out a little bit further. You need to soak yourself in the gospel. John 20, 31 says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You also need to talk to close friends about what you're going through. Don't stay like a closed book, but open the book of your life to trusted, God-fearing, Bible-believing, those who have faith in Christ, people that can come along beside you and say, I'll pray with you on that. That really stinks. I know that's tough. I'll pray with you on that. But thanks for your honesty. Be honest of where you are. It, listen, it's time for us to lay aside the weights of doubt. The, the world needs to see a group of believers that are sold out completely to the creator of the universe and that the circumstance around us is not going to make us go, uh-oh, things are upside down. What are we going to do now? We need to understand that when the world turns upside down, God is still in control. When the world falls out from under us, when the truths that we thought we knew collapse underneath our feet, when what we stood on is no longer there to stand on, we need to have a faith that says God is still on his throne. The world doesn't need to see doubt. Now, it's real, and we, we don't need to lie about it. 
You know, if, if someone that's non-believing comes up to you and goes, have you ever doubted God? And you say, oh, if I tell them yes, then uh, they'll think that God might not be… Re-. And we go through this little… We play out this whole entire narrative in our mind. Oh, I've never doubted. <laughs> Just be honest. Yeah, I sure have because I'm still trying to figure this thing out. But there's one thing I know for sure. God is sovereign. And the providence of Him moving in this world and in my life is real. And Jesus is who He said He is. He did what He said He did, and He's going to do what He said He's going to do. And that's what my faith is in. And I will never doubt that as best I can. Because listen, this is what it says in Hebrews 12, finishing out this text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, this next part is key. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the Savior we follow. That's where our eyes are supposed to be focused. Our doubt is fed by being enticed by our own sinful nature. Our own sinful nature is going to try to bring into the equation our walk with the Lord, and we're going to bring muddledness and confusion to our walk with the Lord, and our sinful nature is going to entice us with things that are outside of God's plan. And we need to have such faith in God's sovereignty that when something doesn't match up with what His Word says, we are willing to because we have such trust in God's Word to say, "Uh uh-uh, not for me because I trust in a sovereign God who's on His throne who has paid the penalty for me so that I can have a right relationship with Him. We need to stop being enticed into the popular cultural thing that seems to be the right way to say and do things. We need to allow the Word of God to be our plumb line in everything we say and everything we do. We get stuck in the, in the midst of all kinds of crazy makers just simply because we think we're doing right and charging this particular hill or that particular hill, when the first important, 1 Corinthians 15, the first important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're supposed to be championing. And if we can't get that right, what can we offer the world? A good feeling? A pat on the back? A that a boy? Church, we need to be Christ to a lost world. And we can't do that if we don't have faith that surpasses all, trumps all, moves beyond confusion. Let me just kind of go over things. Jesus Christ was God incarnate and walked on the face of the earth. Do we believe this? Yep. If you don't believe something, just shake your head no or just get up and walk out. I'm kidding. Don't do that. All right. So, Jesus healed the sick. How many of us believe that? Jesus healed the sick. All right? So, we have faith that Jesus healed the sick, right? We weren't there. We didn't see it happen. We just have faith that Jesus healed the sick. Jesus gave sight to the blind. How many of us believe that? That's faith. That's a strong faith. Have we ever doubted that? Mm, Probably not. We read about it and go, yeah, that would be the Jesus that I would believe in, that He could bring sight to the blind. Okay, Jesus uh, made the, the crippled and the lame to walk. How many of us believe that? 
All right? So uh, Jesus um, was taken to a cross on our behalf, taking on the penalty of all the world and the sin, was crucified on the cross, and on the third day defeated death with death and is seated at the right hand of the Father. How many of us believe that? All right, so if we can have that kind of faith to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he said he did, why in our everyday life do we not apply that same strength of faith to the things that we're dealing with in everyday life? Why do we hover around doubt? Why do we walk in such a way that kind of goes, well, Jesus is amazing. He defeated death with death and he paid the price for me and the penalty for me and, and I, can, I can have a right relationship with God and oh, the situation in my life. Uh-oh, I'm not sure if God's really involved in this or not. I know, I'm simplifying, right? And sometimes I oversimplify things. But in our walk with God, either he is sovereign and fully provident, or he's not. And the world is faltering, the world is hurting, the world is in a chaotic state because God's people are meandering around doubt. We've got, we've got to get beyond that, and God wants us to, and I think his scripture text uh, tells us how to get beyond that. So here's, let me give you a little example here of, of what we're doing here. This is a dividing line. This is faith. This is unbelief for now. We'll change the definition or change the words in just a moment. So before I became a believer in Christ, I was on the unbelief side, right? This was walking with God in a relationship with Christ. This was me without Christ in my life. It was unbelief. Uh, for several reasons. One is, I may not have realized I needed Jesus. Two, I may not have uh, understood my own sin, or whatever reason, you name it, but I'm on this side in unbelief. And then through the strength of, of my parents who realized the power of Christ, who raised me in a home that said, Jesus is the way, I began to listen to that. And parents, we have to step up our game as the world comes crashing in on our uh, little kids, especially these up here, we have to get it right. And we need to be serious about what we believe and what we don't believe. And, and, and my parents raised me in a home that said, yeah, God created us, life is tough, but Jesus is our Savior. And, and, and at that point, when in my unbelief, I began to ask questions and look and see the example in their lives, and I began to look toward the faith things, and then I came up to the point of where I realized that nothing I say or do is going to make me right before God. I need Jesus. And when, when I came to the end of myself, I began to understand that, and I called upon the name of Jesus, asked him, him into my life to forgive me of the sins that I had committed, to wipe me clean so that I could have a right relationship with him. And you know what Jesus did? He reached out his hand, and he pulled me from unbelief to faith. And those of us who are walking with Christ have had that same experience, even though our story may be a little bit different. Our testimony may be a little bit different of how we came to faith with Christ. But here's the problem. We tend to hover right here. You know, God is good all the time. Oh, problems happen. Um, things are getting a little tough. God, where are you? And this is no longer unbelief now, we're changing this word to doubt, right? 
We're, we're doubting. We're doubting God. We're starting to say, well, maybe God's just not listening to us. I'll, I'll give you a case in point of, of how we kind of pray wrongly. We, we, we say, God, we come before you. We've got this situation going on, and we're lifting up before you this particular problem, and uh, we, we really need for you to do ABC, which is not necessarily a bad prayer in and of itself, but then we follow it with this. If it's your will to do so, and if you, uh, it's like, almost like we're making an excuse for God just in case he doesn't move, right? God doesn't need an excuse. He wants us to come before him in faith. He wants us to call on his name. And then our prayer should be this. God, we're calling on your name to move in this particular thing. And we need you to move in this. We're desperate for you to move in this. Now, when you and I say that we're desperate for God to move on something, he knows that if we're at the point of desperation that he wants us to be at. So I said something a second ago about being at the end of yourself. Let me explain to you why this text leaped out at me in my own doubt in my walk with the Lord. Genesis 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Then in Genesis 18, 12, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Abraham and Sarah, both physically and mentally, and perhaps emotionally, were at the end of themselves. No longer could the flesh prove out its power anymore. They had come to the end of themselves. There was nowhere for them to go. And let me tell you something, when you get to the end of yourself, that's the dividing line between doubt and faith. Abraham and Sarah were completely at the end of themselves. That's where the laughter came from. They were like, really, now you're gonna do this? And let me just tell you, God wants us to the end of ourselves so that we can walk this journey with him. He's either gonna bring us there through things that we need to suffer through, or we can choose willingly to be at the end of ourselves and stop putting trust in human things, human philosophies, human thought processes, human, human ways of anything. Could the weight that you're holding on to be trying to bring you to the end of yourself? Because let me, let me just kind of go here. I know that we're almost finished, okay? So hang on there. We're almost finished. We're, we're doing some things. I, I can feel the, the, the preschool workers downstairs praying for the Spirit to hurry up. All right, but go with me on this because I don't want you to miss what God is bringing out for us on this. When I'm carrying the weight of doubt, when I'm carrying the weight of sin, when I'm carrying the weight of not sure what God's doing, the enemy himself knows this too. And he's going to bring things that's going to entice my nature, my sin nature. He's going to bring things, and he's going to try to add a little bit more weight to it because he too wants me to get to the end of myself. Now, it's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because you have to get to the end of yourself before you realize you need a Savior named Jesus. 
And so Satan wants us to get to the end of ourselves also. And here's why. If I'm muddling over here in the dark, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the dark kind of just wandering around trying to wonder, is God ever going to move for me? Is he ever going to do anything for me? And I feel myself coming to the end of my life, I, or not life, but end of my, my wits, the end of my mental stability, the end of who I am, realizing that every single thing I've tried, I'm being enticed by things of the world. And the enemy knows that when I reach the end of myself, I have to make a choice. Will the end of myself, will I throw off faith and walk toward the world? Or will I turn toward Christ? The enemy's banking on the fact that there's not enough faithful people in people's lives that's going to cause people to look to Christ. The enemy's banking on the fact that when we get to the end of ourselves, we're going to choose the world. You know how many people I understand are struggling with things in their lives? They're, they're struggling with thought process, philosophies. You know, is the Bible, you know, what it should be? And, and maybe I was created a little bit differently. In these, and then and, and they finally say, I just felt free when I, when I just kind of decided to go uh, this other way. Well, sure they did because they think they're throwing off the weights. They're stepping further into being up because they don't have to battle anymore. Satan wants us to the end of ourselves so that we'll choose the world's way. And God is going to use that being in, to the end of ourselves so that he can, we can choose faith. Let me, let me help you with this. Where did doubt first come from? Go all the way back to Genesis when Satan went up to Eve and he said, did God say? So we tend to meander right around this but the same faith we have in a Jesus that paid the final penalty is the same thing that we should have for our everyday life. Listen to this. When we're digging into God's word, we should be looking for Jesus, not an answer to our problem. Do you hear what I'm saying there? We have to be looking for Christ and who he is and not just a simple answer to our problems. So here's some things that we can do to throw in place. Number one, never base your beliefs on your circumstances. Your circumstances will lie to you and lead you down a path. Never base your beliefs on your circumstances. Number two, when you doubt, turn toward Christ, never away. When you doubt, turn toward Christ and never away. Look in the Bible to find Jesus, not just an answer to your problem. And when you turn to Jesus, he will meet you right there and he will take you by the hand and he'll walk you into the way of faith. Pay close attention to the evidence around you. Those who you know are walking with God and, and they have stories of this is how God brought me through this. This is why we fellowship together. This is why we have connect groups. This is why we come together to worship on Sunday mornings. This is why we get involved with the body so that we can hear good stories of evidence of God moving in people's lives. Let me say this. As a doubter, you're not alone. You're not alone. And then finally, the thing I want to offer is accept the fact if your questions get answered, it will not likely get answered in your timing. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are just some things that God is not going to tell us. 
We need to learn to get in the way that God is mysterious. We need to accept that in our mind. In fact, if we try to use our limited, finite minds to understand an infinite God, we're fooling ourselves. It's not possible. And God does not want us to stay where we are, but rather move us forward in faith for Him. Therefore, He's going to allow the things in our lives to be problems to bring us to the end of ourselves, but do not get fixated on the problem. Get fixated on the Creator. Faith is based on the faith of a mustard seed. And we know that the mustard seed is one of the smaller seeds in the world. And we say, well, if I can just have the faith, the size of a mustard seed, then God will move on my behalf. And we're looking at it incorrectly. Because the life that is inside that mustard seed is a 15-foot tall tree. And what we have our faith in is the fact that the life inside of who we are in Christ is the Savior of the world who brings life and brings newness. So our faith is not in the result that God's going to bring. Our faith is in God himself that he knows best and he will do best. So don't place your faith in, well, I'll believe if God does this. Just place your faith in the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he does know best and that he's got you. Let's pray. Father, I trust in your spirit that you are going to meet us in our hearts right where we are and you're going to transform the words that we just heard into our thought process so that it's applicable to where we are individually. So help us to understand that when we get to the end of ourselves, you're there. Help us demonstrate that kind of faith to a lost world. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.